Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Chris and Ross again with another episode of Super Theism. And uh, today I was uh, re-listening to our last call we did at work. I just had a few comments I want to make really quick on that. So when we were talking about the resurrection, I just want to kind of elaborate a little bit further on that and how I think that we we basically we take on bodies that are compatible compatible with our environment. And I think that the earth is going to become like heaven. You know, like we were saying, um the two are going to merge again. And so we're going to need bodies that are compatible with the heavenly environment. Because I think that, you know, earth is a reflection of heaven. You know, as above, so below. You know, we're a reflection, just like we're a reflection of the Elohim, the heavenly men. You know, we are created in their image and divided out of them. We're going to be remerged back, just like earth is going to be remerged back with heaven. So our resurrection bodies are going to be compatible with that environment. And you find... Uh, a lot of extra biblical evidence of this in uh the you know apocryphal traditions like in the apocalyptic literature with the ascension literature like the ascension of you know Isaiah and texts like that or in Enoch um, where uh you know when like Enoch ascended to heaven you know in the later books of Enoch he his body was changed you know, he became the angel Metatron, right? Yeah. Just like with, uh, like, uh, Elijah in the extra-biblical text, he becomes Sandalphon. He becomes an angel as well. You know, he's, uh, uh, he's changed as well when he ascends, which makes sense, you know, I mean. I didn't hear that know. before. Huh? I'd never heard that one before. Oh, yeah, Sandalphon, yeah, that's who he becomes. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Your body would have to change, you know, to uh, be compatible with that environment. You know, it's a higher vibration environment. Um, you still have a body, you know, you still have the form of a man. You retain your same form, but it's not the same quality, right? not the same substance that changes becomes superior glorified and that's why I affirm uh, my beliefs about the uh, atonement I believe both in penal substitution as we've discussed on previous calls but I also affirm a belief in the Gnostic view of uh, apocastasis you know, which is the restitution, you know, restoration of the, the cosmos. Apocalypse. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. However you say it, yeah. 
but yeah, it involves, you know, like theosis and angelification. You know, you're, uh, like I said, you're remerged with your, your heavenly self. Um, you become equal with the Elohim, right, upon resurrection. And uh, heaven or earth is restored to its heavenly state, you know, to its Edenic, just like Eden, you know. And before Eden, the Golden Age, where heaven was literally merged with earth, right? Yeah. So I think it's almost like it's a process of restoration as well. You know, not only was it a penal substitution, but it was a process of literally restoring the cosmos, right? Mm -hmm. Because it says, you know, the whole creation, you know, groans, right, from the the fall, you know? So the whole creation's got to be restored to to the state of what it was before the fall. I think we, uh, and I, I was thinking about that, you know, too, like, where it says in that First Corinthians 15 passage where he read, where it says you got to put on immortality, right? you got to put on incorruptibility. Yep. And I was wondering about that. Well, how how can it mean immortality if that, that passage in Isaiah, right, 65, it talked about 65.20, it said, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. That's talking about people still dying. So what does it mean by immortality? Does it mean immortality in an absolute sense? Or what? It must not. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, it must not, right? You wouldn't happen to have the original uh, Hebrew for that word immortality, would you? Uh, I can look at it here. Hold on. Is it Olam? I mean, I was thinking it makes sense, though, too, because, you know, there's that other passage. I don't remember where it's at. It's in the New Testament, though, where it says only, uh, it's talking about the higher father, where it says only he alone possesses immortality. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else is conditional and dependent upon him, right? Yeah. So... You know, maybe, uh, you know, he is the only one that has absolute immortality, which makes sense because I don't think the Edenic age is going to last forever. It's just going to last an age, probably, you know. I mean, we're going to return, you know, all creation is going to be dissolved eventually. We're going to return to this supernal realm, so it can't mean, it can't last forever. So immortality can't mean forever there, at least in terms of our... uh, our resurrection bodies, you know? Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder if there maybe was still death. That's why we were talking, you know, we were wondering in our past call, was there still death in some form before the fall? You know, I mean, were Adam and Eve originally created to be immortal as in never die, ever? Or maybe they were just supposed to live like an age, you know, like a thousand years and then have, like, a soft death, you know, just, like, go to sleep, perhaps. You see? Yep. And maybe, uh, maybe just the environment of of Eden was pristine, and outside of it, there was death, you know, and animals were eating each other, and, you know, the, the other races outside of Eden were killing each other and such, you know? 
Yeah. Because Eden was a protected environment, right? Mm-hmm. It was closed. It was walled. And that could explain all this evidence, you know, of, you know, like the fossil record, for instance, of, you know, like dinosaurs and all these, you know, how are these creatures that are clearly designed for carnivory, how did they, you know, there's no evidence that they changed at all, right? Right. So that might explain that. Maybe Eden was a sort of a, you know, specific location where this, where you had this sort of pristine environment, but it didn't apply anywhere else outside of it. And he even says that in this Isaiah 65 passage in uh, verse 25, it says, the wolf and the lamb used to be lion and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. See, he qualifies it there. He just says, in all my holy mountain. I assume he's referring to, you know, Mount Zion with Eden on top, right? The original mountain. Yeah. So maybe he's just qualifying it to that environment. Possibly. I don't know. I mean... So, okay, you wanted the original. Uh, yeah, I got it. Oh, you got it. Yeah, it's. Uh, What's it? Well, let me let me look at that original verse. Uh, put on. What does it say? Put on immortality. Yep. Uh, Athanasion. Deathlessness, I guess. Mm. Yeah, immortality, imperishability, freedom from death. Well, I mean, that sounds pretty specific. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. All right, the context would qualify that. Sure, right. Yeah, so maybe it just means life for an age. You know what I mean? Possibly that's what immortality means there. Because even like the Elohim, are the Elohim even uh, immortal? I mean, their their spirits are immortal, but are their uh, their heavenly bodies aren't immortal either, right? Because they're those were created. Yep. And the creation is eventually going to be dissolved. See. So the only true immortality we have is just our spirit, and even that was derived from the higher Father. You know. Mm-hmm. We all emanated out of His spirit. So, I don't know. It's interesting to ponder, but, um, yeah, so that's all I wanted to comment on that. And then, before you get into that article, Ross, uh, there's something I told you I wanted to read, so I almost finished this book. You know, the, uh, what was the mark God placed on Cain? Right. We've mentioned it before. There's this really good part at the end here. A couple parts. Uh, let me see. Okay, so there's first this excerpt here I thought was really interesting. It said, uh, 
says, even, quote, Jewish rabbinical literature confesses that Satan, the angel Samael, was the father of Cain. Midrash, Perk, de Rabbi, Eliezer, 21. The Zohar confesses the same. Zohar 1, 28b, and so does the Talmud. Yebamoth, 103b, High Sarah, 126AB, Ahari Moth, 76B, Bereshith, 36B, Shabbat, 146A, as does the Targum, Pseudo Jonathan, and the Jewish Encyclopedia, 1905, Volume 11, page 69. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. <laughs> Some Christian Israel believers claim that because the Talmud contains this information on sea lines, that the Talmud is the source of this concept or theology, and thus they claim it is a, quote, Jewish fable. This is ludicrous. Anyone who believes such nonsense then must deny the existence of Yahweh himself and that Israel is his chosen people and that the patriarchs, prophets, and kings ever existed, that God gave us his law, and that God even created the world, for the Talmud contains all these concepts also. Satan really has some people fooled if all he had to do was insert mention of a valid Bible doctrine into the Talmud in order to, for Christians to reject these truths, thinking they are, quote, Jewish fables. How sad. The Talmud takes truth and corrupts it, twists it, mixes it with error, etc., the Talmud does not invent doctrines, nor does its mention of anything invalidate anything God designed. So I thought that was a really good excerpt. Yeah. Interesting how those uh, texts all admit that Cain, Cain's true parentage. But they give Satan a more dignified name, right? Samael. Yep. Means the venom or the poison of God. I also thought it actually says here, uh, uh, Tubal Cain, it says, Truly Tubal Cain represented a new beginning of evil in the earth. In fact, his name is actually used as a secret password in Freemasonry. I think Freemasonry, uh, reading a lot of, about the Cainite line, I think Freemasonry probably originated with the Cainites. Because they were the first builders. Yeah. They were the first ones to invent a lot of these, uh, you know, like with two-ball cane, you know, metallurgy and things of that sort. <laughs> it's probably why they reverence their names in Freemasonry, you know, they're like secret passwords and such. So, <clears throat> this is the part, the main part I wanted to read. Hold on a second. This is a really good... You're going to enjoy this. Origin of the Negro. Prepare yourself. Gird thy loins for this. So it says, From my youth I have listened to clergy and laymen try to explain the origin of the Negro. Both clergy and laymen had but one solution, and that was his family tree he had to be tied into the Adamic family. He must be made soul-producing in the Son of God. They rest their case in trying to explain his origin through Cain or Canaan. When we test these absurd stories by the scripture, they will not stand. They fail to convince the inquiring and investigating. 
God's first great law, everything, quote, after his kind, of the law of kind after kind. We have no proof that God ever created any new species after Adam. Here are a few of the many changes that would be necessary to change the white man to the full status of a Negro. It would be necessary to change the skin from white and add another coat of skin and make it black. Change the long, round-flowing hair to a short, flat, kinky, hair-like wool. Flatten and thicken the skull and give less capacity for the brain. Also discolor the brain. Flatten the nose. Thicken the lips. Slope the teeth. Change the clavicle, humerus, radius, pelvis, tibia, femur, and flatten the feet. <laughs> These are a few of the changes the scientists tell us would be necessary to make or reduce a white man to a Negro. Yeah, you're talking full-on Darwinism there. Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, go on. No, I just said exactly. Oh, okay, yeah. Did Cain actually turn black? Now, after taking Cain or Canaan through all these changes, then they would be in the position that Adam was when he gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. Quote, but for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. End quote. None of the Bible students who hold to the theory that the Negro came from Cain or Canaan have ever found him a helpmeet, and hence this theory is utterly useless unless you can find a mate for him so they can produce after their kind. Where is that black woman for a wife for this new species? That's a really good point, right? Because if Canaan, if their theory is that Canaan uh, was the first black man, right, well, where was his mate? In order to propagate the species, you would have had to have a, a black female mate, right? Yeah. Or <laughs> there's no evidence where she come from then. None so far has ever offered any. Then why believe this ridiculous and absurd story? Paul said, prove all things. We have been left without proof. Now let us see if we can find a solution to this question from the Bible. Let us quote three passages of Scripture from the first, second, and third chapters of Genesis. Quote, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. End quote. Genesis 1.25 <laughs> And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. Genesis 2.20 now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Genesis 3.1 No doubt the beasts of the earth and the beasts of the field are the same as they are used under the same condition. So it says three kinds of life on the earth. It looks like the earth brought forth three classifications of life. Creeping things, cattle, four-legged, beasts of the field, two-legged. Each type being above the other. That would make the beast of the field supreme over the cattle and creeping things. This serpent, or beast of the field, had the gift of speech as he held conversation with Eve in the garden, or in the grove. <laughs> and he said unto the woman, Yeah, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, or the beast of the field, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not truly die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Quite some conversation for a woman to hold with a snake and not be excited. The Hebrew word is nakash, and it does not mean serpent or snake. Consult Dr. Clark's commentary upon the Bible. <laughs> Talking about Gordon Clark? I don't know. I'm not sure there. He doesn't clarify, but that'd be interesting if it was. I wondered that, too, when I read that. Uh, so it says, the serpent is punished. Here is the punishment meted out to the offender of Mother Eve and Father Adam. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Genesis 3.4 A careful study of this passage of Scripture does not in the least imply that God started a new species to be known as a snake. God only punished the offender and not all of his species. The sentence was, Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. The punishment put him upon his belly for the duration of his life. Perhaps he lost the power of locomotion. I am of the opinion that the biologist would not classify the snake as a dust eater, but rather one that lives off live food such as birds, rats, mice, eggs, or anything he could capture. Let me direct your attention to another passage of Scripture to aid you, namely, quote, And the Lord took the man, Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. The Garden of Eden embraced four river valleys, quite some job for one man to dress and keep. It would take several thousand servants, or beasts of the field, to do the job. God never asks the impossible of man. He always provides the way. There are many passages of Scripture that will give us much light upon this subject. Let us turn to the book of Jonah. About all the reader has gotten from the book of Jonah is the fish story. Now let us look at another angle of this remarkable book. What was the trouble in Nineveh that God was going to destroy it in 40 days? So it says, quote, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. End quote. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yeah, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Jonah 3, 4, 6, 7, and 8. Notice carefully the arrangements of the wording, quote, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, end quote. Quote, But let man and beast be clothed with sackcloth, end quote. 
just what beast is this that is coupled with man and is ordered to cry unto God for the evil that is in his hand? Evil is a violation of divine law of which flocks or herds could not be guilty. Let us now turn to the plagues put upon the Egyptians. Quote, the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. <laughs> Sorry, I was reading the chat. Uh, and it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. End quote. Exodus 9, 8, and 9. All of the domestic animals had died of moraine. Again, we have a beast afflicted like man and is of more worth than the domestic animals as the plagues grew in severity. The night of the Passover, the Lord slew all of the firstborn of man and beast. This could not apply to their stock as they had previously been destroyed. When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, the Lord had Moses to set bounds around the mountain with orders, not a hand was to touch it, whether beast or man. It is ridiculous for us to try to connect this beast with the domestic animals. We will have to find a better explanation. If this be the Negro, then we can understand the flood story. Amalgamation, not after their kind. <laughs> so that was really interesting, right? Yeah. You know the passages that it gave that it gave there. Yeah, yeah. Just do a Bible <laughs> search on uh, beasts of the field or beasts of the earth, and then apply this theory to it, and uh, you will be triggered. I know, right? <laughs> this just like this man. This makes the Bible really hard to. I mean, this. I was just thinking about this today at work because I work with two. Uh, like I said, my only two coworkers are two. Mexicans, right? That are there with me all day. So it just makes it hard for me to talk. It's just this when you know that when you get black filled into this stuff, like it alienates you that much more, man. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't talk about this kind of stuff with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they'll get hardcore triggered. You know, I'm still I'm still triggered by it because I am, as I've told you before, I'm mixed white and uh, a little bit of Native American in my ancestry. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not triggered by it, though. (laughs) I mean... Well, it's humbling, at least, is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it says, uh, in the days of the flood... And it, and it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives, of all of which they chose. Genesis 6, 1 through 2. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Genesis six twelve. Uh, God's way has been from the beginning everything after his kind. Noah was a descendant of Adam, who was the son of God. He found favor with God because he was just and perfect in his generation. Pure-blooded stock, no crossbreed in his line. 
how are you to answer the atheist or infidel when he calls upon you to explain a passage like this, quote, But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. Deuteronomy 20.16 Could you justify this severe decree only upon the grounds of amalgamation for which the flood was brought upon all the earth? Six years thou shalt sow thy land, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of they, thy people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thy olive yard. Exodus 23:10 through 11. Yeah, I, I would not be guilted at all by the atheist virtue signal in this. I would stand firm and and say yes. Because God is totally sovereign. He's not effeminate at all. He's totally masculine and he can do whatever he wants. So if it makes you feel bad, that's that's too bad, you know. Buck it up, buttercup. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh... So, what beast of the field is this that the Lord tells us that you can turn your vineyard over to gather what they need? It certainly would not be sheep or goats, cattle or horses, for if you did, you would not have much of a vineyard left. We certainly have to separate the beast of the field from the domestic animals to answer this scripture. Joel makes a very clear distinction between the domestic animals and the, quote, beast of the field when he describes the great drought sent upon Israel for her sins. Quote, How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yeah, the flocks of sheep are, are made desolate. The, quote, beasts of the field cry also unto thee. End quote. Joel 1.18 through 20. Here again, we have the beast of the field crying to God for relief. That was interesting, and, it, and yeah, in that passage, it's distinct from the herds of cattle and the sheep and the flocks of sheep. <laughs> Revelation is a very interesting statement, which will give us much light upon this subject. Quote, and the four beasts said, "Amen." And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Revelation five fourteen. Quote. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the voice of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see, Revelation 6.1. Here we have four beasts associated with four and twenty elders giving honor and praise to the Lamb, which is the Christ. Ezekiel has this to say about Egypt, quote, No foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, neither shall it be inhabited for forty years. Ezekiel 29.11 Death was the penalty for either man or woman to lie with a beast. Leviticus 20.15-16 What beast is there that a man or woman may lie with? Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore, or the price of a dog, into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. For even both of these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Here is a creature that is called a dog. The Christ will let us know what a dog is if we will turn to Matthew 7, 6. Quote, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Also Matthew fifteen twenty. 
In his conversation with the Canaanite woman, he said to her, quote, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs, end quote. Therefore, he classed her as a dog or a mongrel or a mulatto. Christ said, quote, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, end quote, Matthew 15, 24. It is a great pity that the creeds have not yet come to this understanding. This may explain the poor showing made by the missionaries for the past 200 years. <laughs> that ain't no joke. So yeah, uh, Christ was just sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was just sent to the, you know, the the northern, the ten northern tribes that had been lost and dispersed throughout the lands, and they were under the curses of the law, right? Yeah. So they had to be. They were divorced. God had to cleanse them to to remarry them so they could re-enter His covenant, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, you know, they had to be justified by, by Christ because they were completely guilty of of all the curses of the law, which there's no way they could, you know, there's no way they could redeem themselves or cleanse themselves. Uh, so let's see. The book of Jude is one of the great books that open the understanding and clearly tells us that these ungodly creatures are not acceptable to the Lord. Jeremiah refers to them as, quote, detestable and abominable things, end quote. <laughs> oh, man. I think that's Johnny in the chat, by the way. Galvan? Yeah, from Lost the, uh, Reality Lost Reality Radio. Okay. <laughs> okay, uh Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. How do you say that word? Lasciviousness. Lasciviousness. There you go. Lasciviousness, yeah. And denying denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Eternal there is a mistranslation. What it really means is irresistible fire, or fire that can't be quenched. doesn't mean eternal or everlasting. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam, for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor, or Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity, 
when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit wherewith without fruit, or withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, end quote. <laughs> Okay, so I'm almost done here. What a sermon. What more can be said? What could you add that would be more convincing that we have many that we we have many that are not entitled to the common salvation? Jude clearly states that Cain's sin was going after strange flesh, not like himself. There is no doubt that the Negro is a pre Adamite and had been upon earth long before Adam. All of the scientists tell us his skeletons are found deeper in the earth than the white man. It is time for the religious world to give more consideration as to why God wiped out all of the people in the days of the flood except Noah and his family. If the Negro was in the ark, he came over a pre-Adamite and not the descendant of Noah. Ezra and Nehemiah, upon the return of the children of Israel from their captivity, would not permit any of any to work upon the temple except those who could prove they were Israelites. Quote, now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, they separated from Israel all the mixed multitudes. End quote. Nehemiah 13.3 In our charity we have done the same as Israel of old, and have not kept the law. From these scriptures it is plain that God considers amalgamation with the Negro as a great sin. May not this be the unpardonable sin? The Negro has been put here upon the earth by God for some purpose. We may rest assured that purpose was not racial or social equality. Social equality is preposterous. The root of all this racial and social equality lies at the feet of the teaching of modernism. The Negro was not to blame for this heresy. He has always been happy and content with his own kind. <clears throat> All nature expresses this thought. All birds are satisfied with their kind. All animals are satisfied with their kind. All insects are satisfied with their kind. All the denizen of the sea are satisfied with their kind. May we not profit by their example. In our examination of the scripture, we have found the following. A beast that can talk, Genesis 3-4, Revelation 6-1. A beast that has a hand, Exodus 19-3, a beast that has a foot. Ezekiel 29.11, a beast afflicted like a man. Exodus 9.9, a beast you can trust in your vineyard. Leviticus 23.10-11, a beast you can lie with. Leviticus 20.15-16, a beast that can put, put on sackcloth and ashes. A beast that can cry unto God. Jonah 3.8, a beast associated with man doing, doing evil. Jonah 3.8, a beast in the presence of the Lamb or Christ. <laughs> Revelation 6.1, David tells us to whom dominion was given, quote, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, or the Elohim, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. 
All sheep and oxen, yeah, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fishes of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. End quote. Psalms 8, 3 through 9. Stop, reflect, and consider as to who has been given dominion. <laughs> the other races know it, too, as I've already said multiple times. They know when they always cry about white supremacy or white oppression, I just think they're acting out their instincts. They know that the white man is inherently superior. They know it. Yeah. They know it, you know? That's why, for instance, like black people, they'll they'll cry, you know, white supremacy, white oppression, yet if you tell them, well, why don't you just leave and go to Africa, then they won't do it because they love the no, white man deep down. Because there's no free handouts in Africa. Well, yeah, but they love they love the civilization that the white man has created, and they know that they can't create anything comparable uh, by themselves, right? Yeah. They know inherently that the Adamic race, the Caucasoid race, is superior and, and was given dominion the very beginning of Genesis over everything. All of creation. Okay. And this author, they also forgot the most important verse, I think, that reveals the true identity of the beast of the field, and that is uh, Genesis 9, when it talks about the beast of the field being uh, culpable for murder. Right? Yeah, proving that it, this beast, this, this term "beast of the field," cannot refer to an animal. It's impossible, right? Yeah, animals can't be morally culpable for murder. <laughs> Makes no sense, you know, for murdering an atomite. What race? And, and that's why. Hey, Chris, let me interject. That yeah, uh, if this theory is correct, which I. I entertain it as a possibility the more and more I hear about it. Um, that mm-hmm. also explains why in situations of bestiality, the Torah commands death for both the animal and the human involved. Oh, yeah. Good point. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I, I believe this totally. I don't even, I don't think it's, I think it can be deduced from the Bible and is the most consistent interpretation. Yeah. You know, bearing all the evidence. I mean, Genesis defines for you what beast of the field is. I mean, it, the category included the serpent. It said the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field. It's clearly referring to a humanoid. I mean, it only gives you one specific example of a beast of the field, and it's a humanoid. I mean, that should tell you all you need to know, you know what I mean? It speaks, it offers them fruit, yeah. Yeah. It's a humanoid creature that's intelligent, that has sentience. So I think that category included all the non-Adamic humanoid races, which would include the pre-Adamic races. I think it included, you know... I mean, it was a pretty broad category, though, I think. I think it included also non, uh, well, like, you know, like, you know, obviously the serpent race, 
know, the Nakash reptilian race, serpentine race, the probably like uh, maybe um, dwarves, the dwarven race, maybe. You oh, know, yeah. The so-called elementals? Sort of. Possibly, yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't, I'm not too sure if the elementals would be... Any elementals might have been a little bit more subtle. They were a more subtle uh, creature. I don't know if they were exactly um, talked about in the Genesis creation, you know? Yeah. But, cause, I mean, I think that, you know, the reptilian serpent race, they're a dense, they're a dense race, just like, just like us. I mean, just like mm-hmm. black, you know, negroids or mongoloids or they're, they're, de- they're a dense, a dense physical race, just like us, you know, just cause we can't see them or we're not, you know, we don't interact with them daily or they're out of sight, out of mind. That doesn't mean they're not, you know? Yeah. Just cause they're, I think they're underground cause they were banished there. That was, his, that was his punishment. But so I don't know if, uh, the more subtle, you know, like elementals would be included in that category because they're not they're not dense like we are. You know, they're more subtle, uh, more subtle beings. So it says, uh, what race has mapped the starry heavens that watches the stars in their courses, calculates the time of the eclipse of the sun and moon, and figured out the path of the comets? that has harnessed the lightning, gas, and steam, and made them do the work of millions of men, that has conquered the air, surveyed the ocean bed, and mapped the currents until the time of high and low tide, that has brought forth the precious things of the ancient mountains, gold, silver, copper, iron, lead, zinc, etc., that produces the precious things of the earth, wheat, oats, corn, rye, cotton, cane, beets, potatoes, and all of the precious fruits, etc., that dams and bridges the rivers and takes the water and makes the desert a garden, that has given to the world the railroad, the steamboat, the automobile, the printing press, the loom, the threshing machine, the airplane, the aerometer, the cotton gin, the moving picture, etc., etc. We could go on and on in naming the things produced by the descendants of the Adam or Adam man who was the son of God. To him was given dominion, and it is so. Salah. Okay, that was it. I thought that was really good, though. <laughs> Are you there? A lot to chew on, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, dude, if this is all true, and like I said, I'm leaning towards completely believing it. <laughs> this is the most jagged-cornered red pill I've ever come across. It's like the ultimate black pill, dude, when you realize yeah. the Bible actually refers to other peoples as beasts of the field. <laughs> yeah, and that you may be oh, one man. of them, or you may be mixed, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's incredibly embarrassing. Yeah. But, uh-huh. hey, you can't change it if it's true, so you got to embrace your place and uh, serve the Creator or... You know, choose to lose by fighting him. What's Johnny saying? He's saying that he's finds oh, he's, some black chicks uh, attractive. 
No, I've actually. You know, I, before I, I, I don't know. Uh, After I've come to this life. realization, dude, I I don't. I'm not really even attracted by any other race anymore. Like I'm not kidding. Yeah. I know it, it can be trained, but uh, I told him that we theorized that the fact that we can sometimes uh, feel attraction towards other races um, is a sign of our devolution in the current. Oh time. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not, though, anymore, man. I'm not. Yeah, I know. Like I said, it can be trained out of you. Yeah, uh-huh. All right. So, Ross is going to read for us a article he found um, about... Uh, well, you go ahead. I'll just pass it off to you, Ross. All righty. Hey, if my audio's uh, crappy at any time, tell me. Okay, yeah, you sound good right now, so... All right, cool. So this is from the Weston A. Price Foundation website, westonaprice.org. It's an article called Copper-Zinc Imbalance, Unrecognized Consequence of Plant-Based Diets and a Contributor to Chronic Fatigue. All righty. A commonly reported consequence of vegetarian or vegan diets or even diets that rely too heavily on plant foods, is chronic fatigue. Many sufferers subsequently embrace the principles enumerated by Weston Price, adopting a diet containing more nutrient-dense animal foods and fat. However, the fatigue often persists even after considerable time on the new diet. While Americans have been receiving a broad education on the nutritional value of plant foods, evidence has accumulated to indicate that diets that rely too heavily on plant food sources have special problems of their own. Those of us interested in traditional nutrition have become familiar with some of these, including fatty acid, fatty acid imbalances, B6 and B12 deficiencies, and untreated phytates in whole grains, legumes, and nuts. As we continue to delve into these areas, the seriousness of these dietary imbalances continues to emerge. Disruption of the copper-zinc ratio is an overlooked contributor to intractable fatigue that allows excessive reliance on a plant-based diet. The result is toxic accumulation of copper in tissues and critical depletion of zinc through excretion. This condition usually goes unrecognized because copper levels in the blood can remain normal. Also, most doctors are unprepared to meet with extreme zinc deficiency and its baffling effects on many systems of the body. Hair mineral analysis, competently used, is the tool which can unravel the complexities of this growing problem. In particular, it is becoming clear that plant-based diets, and lighter diets generally, cause serious nutrient imbalances and long-term damage to digestion and cellular metabolism that are not easily corrected. This is of consequence for us in the traditional foods movement because we are asking people to return to higher-density foods they may not have eaten for many years, if ever. Proper physiologic balance can be restored, but the period of transition in some cases may be longer and more difficult than we have anticipated. An unrecognized danger. This article explores a major hurdle to dietary recovery, which has remained little known, although an accessible book by Anne Louise Gittleman, MS, introduced the topic in 1999. The fact is that the micronutrient copper is widely available in unrefined foods, but the mineral zinc needed in larger amounts to balance copper can only reliably be obtained in optimum amounts from land-based animal foods, 
in particular eggs and red meats. These, of course, are among the foods that have been most stubbornly attacked by mainstream nutrition authorities. <clears throat> Excuse me. They are also among the foods lacto-vegetarians and others who have conscientiously adopted light diets have the most difficulty in reintroducing. It is tragic that Americans who have been inspired to adopt healthier diets have been so harmfully misled by the anti-animal foods dogma, often against their better instincts. I myself was led into this trap in the mid-1970s. This is the author of the article talking, not me. And have only found my way out of it in the last few years. Although I found the Weston A. Price Foundation material when it first appeared and benefited from many of its suggestions, I was unable to consistently expand my diet or even tolerate any fat until I learned to recognize and apply the lessons of the copper-zinc imbalance. In fact, this imbalance could very well have killed me. Controlling copper. A brief survey of copper-zinc imbalance will... Sh What's that? Hello? Yeah, I'm here. I, I heard somebody's voice in the background. A oh. brief survey of copper-zinc imbalance will show why this condition can be so serious. Copper is an essential trace mineral, but it is needed only in minute amounts. It works in a paired relationship with zinc, sometimes in complement and sometimes opposing. Copper is present in most foods and is also absorbed from the environment. When zinc is present in abundance and when there is enough quality protein available to bind it, copper can be handled freely and the excess can be readily excreted through the bile. But when the diet is lacking in zinc and protein, however, and in fats to promote bile production, use of high copper foods and environmental copper, primarily ingested through our water, promote buildup of copper in our tissues. The late Carl C. Pfeiffer, PhD, MD, formerly of the Brain Bio Center in Princeton, New Jersey, has provided us with the most comprehensive overview of nutritional problems associated with copper and zinc in his classical study, Mental and Elemental Nutrients. As he succinctly puts it, deficiency of zinc accentuates copper excess. Mm. Here, we have a, here we have a classical dilemma of the medical flight from traditional, traditional diets. In lighter diets generally, and in heavily plant-based diets in particular, Zinc is sharply reduced relative to copper. Protein is curtailed, and fat is provided scantily at best. The excess copper that builds up in tissues is in unbound, inorganic form, highly immobile, and creates a low-level toxicity that it interferes with many body systems. Particularly affected are the liver and digestion, which are already hampered by increasing deficiency of zinc. As bile function and digestive vigor decline, difficulty with meat and fat develops. Right. Lesions, what's that? Oh. It shows you that uh, vegan or vegetarian diets disrupt your gut, you know, balance your gut flora. Yeah. Just digestion, uh, yeah. Legions of light diet and vegetarian adherents feel justified in their choices because heavier food becomes unpalatable to them. See that's right there, Chris. That's that's why they 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 get tricked into believing that they're becoming healthy. It's because they're starting to become deficient. So the good foods that they need are, you know, they're hard for their body to process. Right. Uh huh. Vicious vicious cycle, vicious circle. Uh huh. Yep. All right. The grain connection. 
we can quickly recognize a connection here that is particularly relevant to traditional foods nutrition. The copper-zinc ratio in grains is disturbed by refining grains. This ratio tends to be low in plant foods anyway and is shifted further in favor of copper by the refining process. In whole grains, as we know, phytates interfere with zinc absorption, so the net benefit from unrefined grains, grains is always problematic and probably very low in most cases, while copper, which is less affected by phytates than zinc, gains again in the copper-zinc ratio. This loss of nutrients, though serious, seems to have had less effect in past generations when much of the country still lived rurally and meat and eggs were liberally used. Current ideology, however, has shifted the burden of a diet to grains and other phytate-bearing foods, and most people concerned with nutritional values of their food today have come to believe that these foods are reliable sources of both protein and zinc, which results in poor protein nutrition, zinc uh, deficiencies, and buildup of excess copper. Modern conditions. Even in 1975, Pfeiffer considered zinc status in most Americans to be borderline at best. After 25 years of vegetarianism and plant-based diets, it is doubtful our status today is even that optimistic. Too many other factors also work to increase copper and work against zinc. Zinc galvanized pipes have been replaced by copper pipes in many areas, which can be etched by slightly acidic water supplies. Birth control pills and other medications increase the retention of copper. Blanching of vegetables before commercial freezing removes zinc and many trace minerals, while copper is added to many multivitamins. There are numerous other factors contributing to this imbalance, but most devastatingly, zinc is lost from our bodies every day when we are under stress. The more stress, the higher the losses, and yet zinc is needed in large amounts by our stress-resisting adrenal glands. Hmm. When we are zinc deficient, our innate coping resources can start to unravel, and the grind of everyday stress can seem overwhelming. Effects on the personality. I know now that I started life with a big zinc deficiency liability. Four years ago, my acupuncturist put me on a copper-zinc balancing program, but it was only about a year ago that I learned about pyroluria, uh, pyro, yeah, that's how you say it, from the resource toolkit in The Mood Cure by Julia Ross, M.A., those of us with this condition, affecting 11% of the population, produce excessive amounts of a metabolic toxin called pyroles, which, require, which requires vitamin B6, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> which requires vitamin B6 and zinc for detoxification. Significantly, this condition is found disproportionately in those with alcoholism, schizophrenia, and mood disorders. It can also produce baffling physical symptoms due to heightened deficiency of these two nutrients, as well as manganese, a nutrient that is crucially needed to activate arginase, the enzyme that converts ammonia to urea for excretion from the body. Pyroluria, like copper-zinc imbalance, was first researched at the Brain Biocenter. Pyroluria patients display a range of symptoms connected with severe zinc deficiency, that are familiar to me from my work with chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome, CFIDS, including nausea, loss of appetite, abdominal pains, and headache, all of which can be associated with food intolerance and digestive problems, as well as nervous exhaustion, emotional fragility, 
palpitations, depression, and insomnia. Other complications include abnormal EEG findings and cognitive difficulties ranging from misperceptions and hallucinations to amnesia. Cognitive deficits such as memory, attention, and concentration disturbance are widely recognized in CFIDS patients and can occasionally take on more serious manifestations. These observations lead me to suspect that pyroluria may also be disproportionately represented among CFIDS patients. <clears throat> Certainly, uh, chronic fatigue of a baffling type is a hallmark of the copper-zinc imbalance more generally. Nutritionist Anne-Louise Gittleman discovered the importance of copper overload in her practice when results of hair mineral analysis, sometimes referred to as tissue mineral analysis, helped explain the fatigue of patients who had not responded to treatment for suspected causes of the problem. Among a varied population, the only common factors were fatigue and high copper analysis. But as she also stresses, copper overload and its accompanying zinc deficiency are usually just fatigue. In addition to problems already mentioned, she recognizes hypoglycemia, anxiety, racing mind and panic attacks, skin problems, and premenstrual syndrome. Racing mind, which I have experienced as a kind of desperate circular chattering of my own thoughts that can go on for days, is a special case here because it is so specific to the copper overload problem. The cognitive deficits of chronic fatigue patients are often characterized as brain fog, and investigators have found a general slowing down of brain functions. For patients to complain of rushing, frantic thought processes is an anomaly that can complicate the diagnosis of chronic fatigue unless its role as a tip-off of possible high copper is recognized. Michael Rosenbaum, MD, has credited Gittleman with recognizing tired bodies with overactive minds as the signature of the copper-zinc imbalance. Candida and infection. Two other serious conditions mentioned by Gittleman deserve special consideration because they are often involved in the more critical CFIDS form of chronic fatigue. The first of these is yeast overgrowth, termed system, systemic candidiasis or candida by alternative practitioners. Copper, Gittleman informs us, is the body's natural yeast killer. When it is bound up in tissues, however, blood copper may be low, resulting in reduced white blood cell activity. High levels of bioavailable copper can also be a problem, however, in exacerbating the condition. As in so much of mineral metabolism, balance is necessary to permit optimum function. Other infections also play their part in CFIDS and can lead to the immune dysfunction that characterizes it. Gittleman tells us that individuals affected by chronic bacterial infections are found to have copper that's low or unavailable, while conditions of chronic viral infection are more typically connected with low zinc and high copper levels. Such patients often struggle on for years with little improvement, but may benefit from a copper balancing program. Keynote of poor health. Struggling on has pretty much been a keynote of my life. In childhood, I was weak and shy, always underweight. I was diagnosed with anemia and also treated with thyroid medication in early adolescence. It may have helped, always subject to frequent strep infections and earaches, I was a chronic absentee from school, but about that time I resolved to maintain regular attendance and was able to do so. 
but new problems appeared. I sunburned severely and was subject to stretch marks, signs of zinc-related skin fragility. I had my first yeast infection when only 13. I also experienced characteristic late-onset menarche. That's uh, what, menses, the beginning of menstruation? Mm Mm-hmm. Again, this is the uh, article author talking, not me. I am a male, so I don't experience menarche ever. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, it goes on. Uh, This pattern of uncertain health only worsened as I grew older. I suffered serious depression and attention problems I realize now were probably side effects of birth control pills. My use of these throughout my 20s was only the first of several major developments that would greatly aggravate my inborn copper-zinc imbalance. When I first became interested in natural foods, I turned to Adele Davis and D.C. Jarvis of folk medicine fame. These authors represented the natural foods movement for me, and I never believed vegetarianism was necessarily the right or best lifestyle. But when I moved into a household with a vegetarian requirement, I made a fatal mistake. I accepted the premise that that it was not really necessary to include meat, fish, or poultry in the diet to be healthy. When I then, after a year or so of vegetarian lifestyle, acquired HHV2 infection, I was really in serious trouble, and the ominous deterioration of my health during the next few years took me decades to climb out of. Mm -hmm. Like so many immersed in the vegetarian culture, I strove to deal with my new crises by moving to more and more rigorous regimes rather rather than returning to the more nutritious foods that I had eliminated. Mm -hmm. My chronic infections from childhood had never let up. I had suffered constant vaginal yeast infections since my early 20s. Now to this were added, more and more frequently, headaches, painful joints, and burning pain over my body in a general misery. Studying natural health seriously now, I found that these bouts, which I called acid attacks, could be... be, uh, mitigated by the popular cleansing and alkalinizing regimes that so many vegetarians admire. Of course, there was no one to inform me of the vital role of high high quality protein in maintaining proper pH in the body. That's interesting. I've always heard that protein is acidifying. Yeah. Uh, More propaganda. All right. Mm Mm-hmm. Having gained some relief from my symptoms, however, I was able to sort out the pattern of these attacks more specifically, and they were centered on a cycle of liver and intestinal inflammation. It was this that I now sought to understand and unravel, and I was to pursue this quest doggedly year after year in spite of blank looks, indifference, and patronizing responses I received from practitioners across the spectrum of the healing arts. I had to do detective work on my own in those early years. Sorry, let me catch my breath. Man, dude, this reading's a lot of work. <laughs> I guess you're used to pacing yourself. All right. <clears throat> Fats and acid attacks. It was through careful self-testing that I first learned that fats were the source of my acid attacks. It was a relief to find a cause, but also alarming. From my early studies, I knew very well the crucial role of fat-soluble vitamins. Was it only certain fats? I would experiment again and again over the years, trying to find ways to get a little fat into my system. All fats, even the highest quality, gave me these problems. For the present, I avoided all fats, 
because of the price and pain and debility. It was truly ironic that everyone thought my diet was really healthy. One Radio Talk nutrition expert asked me, why would you want to eat fats? Even then, in the early 80s, I knew better. At that point, things had, if possible, gotten worse. I had done an internship in iridology with a raw foods expert. I learned a great deal from this man about cleansing and retracing, a condition where old health problems resurfaced during the cleansing process, and I respected his program because he valued fats. He used substantial amounts of avocado and seed sauces to give his vegan regime some density, and he was not the archetypal gaunt vegetarian. But I was trying to do his program without those foods, and living on raw sprouts gave me new intestinal pro- problems. There was no way to get enough food, let, enough, uh, let alone nourishment, from such a program. That was only the first time I, ne- I nearly starved. I had discovered I could not go back to even a more moderate vegetarian diet. I recognized that I had lost crucial digestive abilities. I now got acid attacks just trying to eat cooked food, even without fat. Dr. Paul Eck, a pioneer of mineral metabolism and hair mineral analysis, was an early researcher and clearly recognized this destructive aspect of the vegetarian diet. He asserts that the vegetarian does not act freely in his choice of diet, He is forced into it by the progressive collapse of his metabolism. This collapse is certainly what I experienced. Thankfully, I found two foods during this time that saved me. For years, I used a seed sauce of my own design made with sunflower seeds and tofu. That is, I had finally found a substantial food I could rely on for protein and some fat. The home culturing of the sauce seemed to make it more digestible and probably also reduced some of the problematic components of the soy, of which I was unaware at the time. I was also receiving a basic source of zinc from the sunflower seeds, a nutrient that had concerned me because I knew of its role in healing and the immune system. I did not know how extreme my zinc deficiency must have been, though I watched my nails for telltale signs. Um, They say that Oh, she mentions it. In all those years, I never developed the white-spotted or deformed fingernails that are often said to be linked to extreme zinc deprivation. That's interesting. That is. So so the signs they tell you to look for might not be there. Hmm. At least in that that one sign. Anyway, unfortunately, this sauce was also high in copper. Perhaps my second saving food helped me with this, however. Not tolerating commercial supplements, I turned to spirulina as a food supplement. I knew spirulina... Yeah. Yeah. Pond scum, basically. Yeah. Uh I knew spirulina provided a broad range of nutrients. It was only years later that I learned how beneficial it is for the liver and realized it had probably helped me to reduce some of my copper load. It certainly aided my digestion, and in time I was able to return to cooked foods, though my diet was extremely limited still by my fat intolerance. Yeah. We're not saying spirulina doesn't have its vitamins, but... You know, tell me what you've heard about it, Chris, because I. Well, I mean, I've heard good things about it, but I mean, to me, it's just any plant substitute like that for an animal, you know, an animal product is going to be inferior Hmm. in terms of the, the nutrients you can get out of it.
You there? Yeah. You know what I mean? Just, just getting a drink, yeah. Yeah. Right. I think she I have goes some, on. actually, but I don't I don't take it a lot. Yeah, I don't either. You know what? You know why I stopped taking it most of all is because uh I started to notice a lot of those algae supplements, spirulina, chlorella, uh what's mm-hmm. that other one? Clamath, blue green algae. Mm-hmm. A lot of those uh, containers, they say, this product may contain trace amounts of lead. Apparently, all those algaes absorb lead very easily, which is why they're supposed to be good for heavy metal detox. But, I mean, if they already have lead in them, then, you know, is it worth the risk? Plus, I generally agree with Gatiss. I mean, I mean plant food, it's, it just it has a lot of fiber, right? I mean, it's, uh, oh, what is what is that made out of um, that you can't digest? Cellulose? Cellulose, yeah. You can't digest cellulose, you know. It's indigestible matter, the, the bulk of it, you know. It's very, it has very little nutrients. The bulk of it is indigestible, and even most of the nutrients it might have your body can't even absorb without the presence if it does if it doesn't ha- if it's not in the presence of saturated fat, you know, or cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So it's just that's why the fat soluble vitamins are so important because your body can actually absorb them, you know, in the presence of fat or cholesterol, saturated fat. Right. So. Proceed. All right, just a second. I gotta get resituated. <clears throat> All right, how's my audio? Good. All right. Fungal problems. What I had not yet faced was a threat just becoming known. In my raw food years, I had relied excessively on fruit and fruit juices for alkalinizing and just to get enough food. As I read the emerging literature on candidiasis, I was horrified to realize that I had built up a massive systemic yeast problem. And yeast, we remember, is a hallmark of the copper-zinc imbalance. There would be no resolving one without dealing with the other. In 1988, I began treatment with my acupuncturist, Teresa Vernon, and benefited from China. Hold on. Yeah. So how did she build up the yeast inf- infection from, from fruit and uh, just the sugar or what? Yeah, sugar. And uh, it said earlier in the article that you oh you need uh, free copper to uh, detox or, or to keep the yeast under control. But uh, the type of copper toxicity that she's building up, it's not free. It's like bound up in the tissues and See. stored away. Yeah. Plus the massive amounts of sugar and fructose that she's getting in the... I see. (laughs) That would be good. Okay, go on. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's see. In 1988, I began treatment with my acupuncturist, Teresa Vernon, and benefited from Chinese tonic herbs. Chinese medicine is a godsend for cases like mine because it can work at once by strengthening and balancing the system 
based simply on presenting conditions. Its cumulative effects are slow, however, and I was by now very ill and could not withstand further shocks to my system. I was then going through a prolonged relationship breakdown that I would have to call the most excruciating stress of my not unstressful life. And in 1990, I suffered a severe adverse reaction to Nizoral, an antifungal drug then being used for Candida. This caused serious new liver damage and intestinal damage as well. I had now developed an acute colitis-like um, acute colitis-like condition that would stay with me many more years, and the liver pain was back with a vengeance. Once again, my diet collapsed to a handful of foods. Breakdown. In the fall of that year, I went into total breakdown, a process that is most devastating because it just keeps on getting worse. Gittleman talks about adrenal burnout. Is that how you say that? Adrenal or adrenal? Adrenal. Yep. Adrenal. Adrenal burnout in zinc deficiency as a total exhaustion of the adrenal capacity to respond to stress. Oh, wow. Deep burnout. Yeah. I know, right? It's just like <laughs> crash and burn. Deep burnout produces a bone-shuddering, unrelenting fatigue that is beyond anything I would have imagined. I only hope that by sharing this information, I can spare others that experience. Burnout was only part of what was going on. There were also waves of a kind of feverish delirium that made it very hard to focus on my surroundings or communicate with others. Pfeiffer might have called it an intensifying of disperceptions. In Chinese medical terms, it is referred to as deficiency fire. In energetic form, it can be described as a fast-burning brush fire in dry grass. When the system becomes too depleted, it can only consume itself. It is a complete exhaustion of yin, uh, Y-I-N, as in yin and yang, the reserves and nourishing fluids of the body. I'm trying to see if I can skip any of this Chinese stuff. Not that I don't trust it, but... It seems beside the point. Okay. The Chinese regime treats this with a purge fire and yin restorative herbal tonic program. By pouring on these herbs for weeks, we cooled down to where the outbreaks of fire were less intense and less frequent, but I remained in a <clears throat> excuse me, but I remained in a free floating kind of fugue state for years. It is part of the disorientation of the condition that I don't know now exactly when I came out of it. I see a lesser version of this frequently in the ill persons I assist through our support network. There is such a high level of confusion, distractibility, and anxiety in certain people today that they frequently cannot focus on the information that could help them. Such observations lead me to look into the area of zinc deficiency and adrenal burnout in their situations. With all this, we were trying to fight the candida, too we frequently had to go beyond the available information to make progress. In straightforward cases of flora imbalance, the basic programs generally presented may suffice, but attention must always be given to the problem of die-off. When antifungal supplements begin to kill yeast in the system, toxins are released, which can aggravate symptoms unless care is taken. These symptoms can be mitigated by moderation in the approach but I found I was struggling constantly with erratic and unpredictable flare-ups. What we gradually realized was that in more severe cases, the body can be so saturated with the toxic byproducts of candida 
that these can cause die-off responses with antifungal products, but also by anything with a cleansing effect on the system, even salads and beverage teas in a case as severe as mine. And it's like anything you do, it's going to react and just explode. I also felt that nourishing and strengthening agents, such as vitamins and tonic herbs, stirred up symptoms, perhaps simply because they aided my body in its own efforts. The toxicity of yeast and yeast byproducts is a serious concern, and I have seen yeast control efforts collapse again and again when this factor is not understood. The impulse is to throw everything available at the overgrowth, but we discovered that in many cases it can be eliminated only in minute increments over an extended period of time. All right. I guess I'm going to have to wade through more Chinese medicine info. That's okay. It could be useful. Chinese medicine. I believe Teresa's treatment during those years saved my life. Using care in handling die-off, I was able to progress beyond the phase where nearly everything I did seemed to cause flare-ups. By the late 1990s, I had rebuilt my diet yet again and regained some strength, but I was living mostly on chicken soup and still rarely went out of the house. Teresa and I have both found Chinese herbs and food therapy always helpful for those with chronic fatigue. Neither of us personally know anyone who has recovered from the condition without the help of Chinese medicine. Okay, maybe I should read this. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Yeah. In Chinese medicine, proper food is a major treatment modality. According to Michael Tierra in Planetary Herbology, deficiency conditions are regarded as the root or radical cause of most diseases. Foods are analyzed according to the five flavors, sour, bitter, sweet, pungent, and salty, and applied as a kind of supplement for the primary energies of yin, yang, qi, and blood. In Chinese System of Food Cures, Dr. Henry C. Liu recommends chicken for underweight, poor appetite, diarrhea, edema, frequent urination, vaginal bleeding, and discharge, shortage of milk secretion after childbirth, and weakness after childbirth, all symptoms of yin deficiency. He describes its characteristics as warm and sweet and its action as a tonic for the spleen. In Chinese medicine, digestion is a function governed by the spleen meridian system. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Dr. Liu gives, special, or gives recipes helpful for fatigue, neurasthenia, and memory. His remarks indicate it would be a food of choice for any case of malnutrition, burnout, or digestive debility. Teresa describes chicken soup as healing for everything. She has nursed many patients through this chicken soup phase. I'm going to skip that part. Yeah, the author of the article says that the chicken soup helped her a lot. Uh, Yeah, basically. Oh, and the slight amount of fat that they provide was part of why that worked so well as well as a uh, low fat white fish also helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Fat fat fat. Yep. All right, the next section, ups and downs. During this time, I would improve greatly with this protocol and be able to add more foods for a time, even butter, but then my old problems would return. I understand now that my steady regimen was adding, oh no, was aiding 
my zinc deficiency and allowing me to eliminate copper. My tolerance for other foods would go up and I would improve again when I added eggs. But when I added other foods, I would soon be in trouble again and then the eggs would be too rich again. I realize now that when I could, I would go straight back to copper-rich foods. Uh, see, the body starts to get addicted to the wrong foods. I see that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ironically, copper excess can lead to a craving for copper in some individuals. Mm -hmm. Although it's a bit difficult to understand, Gittleman writes, many people who have high copper in their tissues have difficulty utilizing that stored copper. As a result, they become somewhat deficient in copper in their blood. Because of that deficiency, they often crave high copper foods to give them a temporary energy high. My copper fixes were choices. Uh, oh, my copper fixes of choice were nuts, cereals, and avocado. Dang, I love avocado. I hope I don't have to stop eating that myself. Anyway, thus we can find ourselves simultaneously in excess and deficiency of copper. This paradox can complicate any program of copper zinc balancing. When, in 2002, Teresa began incorporating hair mineral analysis into her practice, she recognized my problem with high copper foods and urged me to begin to detoxify. I had avoided zinc supplements along with so much else when everything gave me a problem. When I reduced high copper foods, my liver pain reappeared. When I tested zinc supplements, my liver pain also reappeared. I began to realize this copper thing would have been a part of my problem for some time, but I didn't have a handle on it yet, and my efforts were erratic. When I read Gittleman's book, all my years of struggle finally fell into place. The key point, copper is normally eliminated in the bile. The bile connection. Liver pain is debilitating and frightening. When tested, my blood panels had been normal. The usual hepatic herbs gave me fits. Without knowing what I was doing, I had always opted for protecting myself and avoiding flare-ups. Now I set out to restore my gallbladder function. The more I learned, the more I was sure copper must be part of my problem. I came to understand that by reducing copper foods, I was allowing copper elimination. By beginning zinc supplementation, I was mobilizing copper elimination. I realized that my gallbladder function had shut down from years of nearly fat-free eating. I knew that my old mentor, Adele Davis, had much to say on the subject, information I hadn't been able to use until now. Miss Davis won my heartfelt gratitude when she described the life of a gallbladder sufferer. Quote, Individuals who have suffered acutely while passing a gallstone or when the gallbladder has been inflamed often become so fearful of food that they frequently live on self-imposed, severely restricted diets, free from all fats, without realizing that they are making their condition continually worse. <laughs> wow. I know, right? Here I read the only description I ever found of my plight. My suffering had been caused by passing of copper, not gallstones, but I had repeatedly been given the same advice. She criticizes, avoid fats to reduce digestive discomfort. Her program uses peanut oil to increase bile acids and recommends whole milk, cream, and butter. The, the Weston A. Price website assumes you'll know that they mean raw dairy products because those are still alive and the vitamins and the enzymes and all that hasn't been broken down, but 
for any listeners who don't know, you need to get unpasteurized raw dairy if you're going to do that. Yep. It can be hard to find, but the Weston A. Price website does give a directory um, through major cities and metropolitan areas throughout the United States for that. Make sure it's uh, grass-fed so, as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they usually try to get only high-quality stuff. Anyway, she continues. I had long since regarded my regarded the epigastrium gallbladder area just below the ribs on the right flank as the focus of my pain and had for some time been using a Chinese formula to clear damp heat from the area. That's a traditional Chinese medicine term. I got hold of some zinc supplements and some bile capsules containing 500 milligrams and was ready to face peanut oil and butter. There was considerable discomfort from the copper elimination and some digestive upset to mark the transition, but understanding now what I was doing, I was able to modulate the process. Within a few days, I was eating soft-boiled eggs with butter and salad dressing with buttermilk and flax oil. By the end of the week, I was experimenting with chicken skin and bits of well-marbled roast beef. Talk about learning things the hard way. (laughs) Indeed. I know I've recently met a vegan who I bet could use this information. Oh, man, I'll tell you about it. So how did she accrue all this damage? Was it from all the, the phytates and the, the lectins or what? Uh, well, she said she was born already with a weakness or a, a tendency towards weakness. And uh, in trying to make it better, she restricted her diet towards vegetarian stuff, and it just got worse from there. Which would have been from what, though? Primarily the phytates and the lectins? Yeah, and not uh, enough fat. You know. Right. So, so right. her gallbladder wasn't producing the bile. Bile is for breaking down fat. And uh, so it kind of just atrophied. Mm-hmm. Hold on, I lost my place. And she was basically getting no nutrients then either because yeah. she wasn't getting any of the fat-soluble vitamins and all the phytates and such, those were making it, you know, hard on her body yeah. to absorb any nutrients that would be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh-huh. All right. Digestive recovery. I have never again had to fall back on my frugal chicken soup diet, though I still make soups several times a week. Now I prefer turkey to chicken because it's richer And I also make soups with beef, pork, lamb, and seafood. Yes, seafood is very high in copper, but after a period of detox and after digestive recovery to restore a a hearty appetite for red meat, copper just isn't a major bugaboo anymore. Bugaboo. (laughs) In teaching traditional foods and working with chronic fatigue advocacy, I am now meeting people frequently who complain of fat intolerance or gallbladder pain or queasiness after rich meals. People are hearing the new information about good fats and are eager to enjoy salmon and butter, olive oil and coconut milk. It is startling to them to find they can't easily go back to more traditional habits. Uh, In this case, she means their traditional habits of uh, restricted diets, heavy plant foods that they were craving and addicted to before. I see this pattern in people who haven't yet developed the multiple problems of low-fat plant-based diets 
and copper-zinc imbalance. After all, that was my first problem, too. We need to take this incipient digestive upset as a warning sign and find our way back to the foods of our ancestors. I feel that digestive recovery is the beginning. Whether a person is coming from the standard American diet or some version of a light or fat-restricted diet, as in my case, the particular nutritional dilemmas a person has gotten into can tell a lot about the struggles developing in his or her body. Gittleman, who had studied the work of Paul Eck, develops his point made above. Many people switch to a lighter diet because red meats and other types of animal protein feel heavy in their system. Ironically, this feeling can develop from copper excess or zinc deficiency or adrenal insufficiency. Individuals with copper-zinc imbalances have trouble digesting and absorbing fat and protein in particular, so they often opt for diets that avoid foods rich in these nutrients. Farther down the spiral, from lighter diets to adrenal burnout, copper buildup becomes almost unavoidable. Adrenal burnout can lead to copper buildup in and of itself. Protein synthesis, especially the copper-binding protein, ceruloplasmin, ceruloplasmin, yeah, I've never heard of that before, slows down and liver detoxification falters. This can lead to, in Chinese medical terms, liver heat, or in more extreme form, liver fire, with symptoms of dizziness, headache, and red eyes. Recall the headaches that marked my first problems, which were cooled by alkaline foods and cleansing herbs. In the full-on deficiency fire state, Waves of dizziness were constant, and my eyes were so sensitive I wore dark glasses even in dimly, dimly, bah, dimly lit rooms. The most easily available herb Tierra, Tierra recommends for liver fire is yellow dock. Its energy is bitter and cool. It functions as an alterative, colog, astringent, aperient, and blood tonic and he recommends it for skin disorders and as a purgative for bile congestion. With skin disorders, think zinc deficiency, and with skin disorders of liver fire, think of the widespread incidence of adult acne. You know, I can uh, vouch for that one. I had severe cystic acne when I was in high school, and uh, zinc in various forms, zinc supplement, especially a topical zinc oxide, just pure zinc oxide cream worn to bed at night, um, that reduced inflammation on the skin like nothing else. Mm. Yeah. It turns out, actually, if I can go on a tangent of my own experience, it turns out I had a uh, a staph infection in my spleen, which was causing the severe acne, and mm-hmm. it was just unrecognized by the normal... Uh, uh, what do you call it, dermatologist? Mm-hmm. You know, he just pres- prescribed some topical stuff. Right, you prescription, know, abrasive, skin cream. Abrasive and, uh, yeah. yeah. It was a, some kind of sulfur-based cream that you had to wash off, like, after 30 seconds of it being on. So you only put it yeah. on in the shower. But, it, you know, very caustic. So how did you find out it was that? Uh, my mom finally took me to a naturopathic doctor, and she did the muscle response testing and a bunch of other stuff. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when she got to the spleen point or the, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, yeah, spleen or staph point. Yeah, yeah, the staph bacteria point is near the spleen. 
like in mm-hmm. front of the spleen between two of the ribs. And when she tested that point on me, I tested super weak on that. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, staph infections can be serious. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yellow docks action as a purgative, he tells us, is similar to rhubarb, but milder in action. This combination of action is especially valuable in our present context since constipation and lower intestinal problems can be a direct consequence of reduced bile flow and low-fat diets. Tierra recommends 3 to 9 grams of yellow dock daily in capsules. This is probably too high when copper is being cleansed. In these cases, I recommend any new herb be introduced carefully. Very small amounts may provoke a reaction, but the portion can be gradually increased as cleansing occurs. Yellow dock is recommended as a digestive aid only. No single herb can clear such a complex condition as liver heat. It is because of this pervasive liver heat that many of our light dieters on the way down become avid salad and fruit eaters or raw food vegetarians, as I did. To go for all this cold food without understanding what it is doing can create new digestive problems. Uh, She means cold in the traditional Chinese medicine sense, you know, Mm -hmm. the opposite of the heat condition that she was suffering from. In Chinese medicine, the spleen meridian system governing spleen, pancreas, and stomach is essentially, oh, is easily damaged by cold, a condition called deficiency of spleen yang. With this deficiency comes poor digestion, fluid retention, and tendency toward mucus. A clear sign of this type of digestive damage is a tongue that is bloated and very pale, frequently heavy coated as well. This condition is frequently associated with candida overgrowth. The vegetarian with a cold spleen condition may be worried about mucus-forming foods and yet crave cooling dairy products that worsen the condition because of liver heat or hot spots elsewhere in the system. The Chinese medical approach allows addressing liver heat with cooling liver herbs and cold, damp spleen with herbs and foods that warm and protect the stomach. My chicken soup, although I did not fully understand it, fulfilled these functions very well. Tierra recommends mildly warming stomachic herbs like cardamom, caraway, and dill, which by aiding the circulatory function of the spleen system benefit the liver as well. Dairy products can also worsen problems with zinc deficiency, according to Gittleman. Calcium can slow metabolism, already sluggish from poor digestion and excess copper. And if foods high in, and if foods high in phytates are eaten with dairy foods, This combination of foods dramatically decreases the body's absorption of copper antagonistic zinc. When I needed to improve digestion and transition to foods with higher nutrient density, ah, I can't talk anymore, man. (laughs) When I needed to improve, yeah, when I needed to improve digestion and transition to foods with higher nutrient density, I relied on non-gluten grains, vegetables, poultry, and fish. Just by cutting out the glutinous grains, I avoided substantial amounts of copper and zinc-binding phytates. Although my uh, program was very low-fat, it greatly improved my digestion and my very cold spleen condition. 
The way I ate then was very similar to the program Gittleman recommends, and I feel her guidelines, guidelines can be helpful for those wishing to transition to richer traditional foods. Healing foods. This program is fairly neutral from the Chinese warm-cold point of view, avoiding excess cold foods. Fish is neutral from the copper-zinc viewpoint as well, as it does not contain great amounts of either mineral. While fish is valuable for its rich nutritional profile, especially essential fatty acids, and is especially digestible for those first adding more protein to their diet, it is important to begin using small amounts of land-based proteins as one becomes able to do so. It is in part the mildly warming nature of chicken that makes it so good for digestion. Although eggs contain only 0.7 milligrams of zinc per egg, their ratio of 7 to 1 zinc to copper is nearly ideal, and properly raised eggs are rich in many accessory nutrients needed to aid detoxification. And red meats are among the most warming foods, with mutton and pork being, essentially, uh, being especially recommended for the spleen. Uh, see our past podcasts on the Torah. We don't believe in eating pork, but, you know, talk to God about that and obey your own conscience, do your own research. Anyway, these land-based proteins are our richest foods and best assimilated sources of zinc. Dark meat poultry and red meat contain the most fat in this group and also significantly more zinc. Yep. Restoring fat metabolism. We know that vitamins A and D in animal fats are essential for the absorption of minerals. Although Gittleman recommends use of enzymes and hydrochloric acid to aid digestion for those who have lost function, she does not provide an affirmative program for restoring fat digestion, such as the use of bile salts, nor does she recommend cod liver oil. She states that reversing copper overload will boost both fat digestion and fat metabolism but I found I had to improve my fat digestion to begin to eliminate copper. Thus, her program uh, stops short. To fully restore our mineral metabolism, we must get past the stage of careful fat restriction, she advocates, and embrace the full range of healthy natural fats, especially fats that will provide the all-important fat-soluble activators. She's talking about, uh, like she's been saying, the uh, animal fats. In 1997, a significant article appeared in the Health Journal of the Price-Pottinger Nutrition Foundation discussing systematic acidosis resulting from glandular deficiencies that impair fat metabolism. The author, a dentist, discussed how this acidosis was the cause of calculus scale deposited on teeth and could be reversed by the supplementation of bile salts. Ooh, hold on, let me... Very interesting... <laughs> the article provides careful and detailed information on bile supplementation, which must be adjusted to individual need. Two tablets of five-grain ox bile are to be taken with each meal to be reduced to one if diarrhea occurs and discontinued if diarrhea continues, uh, indicating another source of fat disturbance is likely. It is interesting that, while I benefited greatly from bile supplementation, I never was subject to dental calculus. Thus, a trial of bile salts is desirable in cases of liver or gallbladder congestion, whether or not calculus is present. I've got an uncle who has to take bile salts. 
Crap. Yeah, no, but this uncle of mine, he he had his gallbladder surgically removed. Yep. Big mistake. Yep. Uh, anyway, some elimination of copper can begin as soon as a shift towards a more balanced diet is taken and is likely to cause some discomfort. As with the candida process, changes should be made slowly, backed up by di- digestive support. If copper release is higher than can comfortably pass through the liver and gallbladder, copper levels in the blood can rise with an increase in digestive discomfort, anxiety, headaches, and other symptoms. To minimize these episodes of copper discharge, Gittleman recommends emphasizing nutrients which have, been, which have an antagonizing action to copper. That is, they reduce its absorption or aid in binding it for excretion from the body. The most important of these, of course, is zinc itself, as obtained from the land-based proteins mentioned above. Uh, manganese and iron act to displace copper from the liver. Vitamin B6 and niacin promote reversal of copper overload. Molybdenum and sulfur, which act in the intestines, facilitate its excretion. And vitamin C, very importantly, chelates copper in the blood to facilitate its removal. But you're all high in uh, animal products. Yeah, I know. That's the that's the key paragraph right there. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them. All those that were just recommended. A diet providing ample animal protein, dark leafy greens, a variety of other vegetables and fruits, fish, small amounts of legumes, and plentiful natural fats can meet these needs. If cold foods worsen your digestion, stick with soups, cooked vegetable dishes, and stewed fruits, and take enzyme supplements. Supplementation. To perform this kind of metabolic work, supplementation is very helpful. For copper overload of long-standing or to obtain more immediate relief, it really becomes necessary. Readers of Wise Traditions are accustomed to using food-based supplements, and I always encourage these for the rich matrix of associated factors they provide. But to address serious conditions like copper toxicity, liver congestion, candidiasis, and adrenal insufficiency, Teresa has found clinical supplementation to be essential. Gittleman recommends supplements in the following amounts to be taken with a copper-free multivitamin, zinc, 10 to 25 milligrams, manganese, 5 to 15 milligrams, vitamin B6, 50 to 200 milligrams, and vitamin C, 500 to 3,000 milligrams. To this, I would add pentathenic acid, 600 milligrams, to support the adrenals. Not mentioned by Gittleman, but of course very important, is a good quality cod liver oil. Let me see if this... Oh, yeah. I have taken these supplements for years and still do. I also take and recommend a natural trace mineral supplement um, as a source of antagonists too, too often depleted from our soils. The product I use contains a mixture of seabed and volcanic montmorillonite, I guess that might be a zeolite uh, play. Uh-huh. Okay, skipping the unimportant parts. Uh, 
Oh, she says that uh, zinc and B6 in higher than normal supplementation levels help to address her pyroluria. Mm -hmm. And uh, manganese and zinc in a 1 to 20 ratio, uh, respectively, uh, facilitate urinary excretion of copper. Mm. Okay, and then recovery. When I was ill, my underweight condition at times approached emaciation, and for years all I could do was prepare my soups, eat them, and return to bed. My digestive recovery five years ago has changed all of that. With a steady diet of bone broths, meat, turkey, butter, eggs, cod liver oil, and raw cheese since that time, I am today <laughs> stout, active, and happy for the first time in my life. I have the uh, musculature to take regular exercise and, most astonishingly, have lost the frail frame I had struggled with all my life. Today, at 60 years of age, 6-0 that is, I have the sturdy bones and rosy peasant cheeks of my Irish and German ancestors, and I have optimism and enthusiasm to bring a friendly world a friendly word about real food to others who have been starving from the lack of it. Yep. Uh, and then the article goes on to list a couple of resources for those supplements and, uh, you know, natural treatment uh, methods, but that's the gist of it. All right. I'll, I'll post the, I'll end up posting the link in the description probably. Yeah. People can that's look at idea. it. But. Yeah, that's exactly what you saw with Gatiss too. Watch watching his transformation on YouTube. He went from a super depressed, completely pale, emaciated looking guy to dull hair, yeah, yeah, to a vibrant like like I said like Uberman, you know. <laughs> I mean seriously, Uberman, yeah. Who's like laugh, he laughs all the time, you know. He's like super. I mean he's his attitude is completely different. Yeah. I mean, seriously, go watch his YouTube videos. Watch his transformation when he used to be a raw vegan. And, yeah, I mean, it's totally different. His mood and everything, you know? Yeah, he's tan. He's he's not, like, ripped or buff, but he's definitely defined in his musculature. And he's confident and, you know? Yeah. And calm and peaceful when he's not laughing, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I was going to say, too, so we were talking about this before we started the call. Um, on uh, We were talking about cultivated uh, fruits. Mm-hmm. So people are under the impression that they're eating, you know, even if they're eating organic fruit, they think that it's natural. You know what I mean? people that would be, you know, maybe like fruitarians, they'd, they think that their diet is natural or that it's healthy because they're, even if they think they're eating organic fruit, you know, and it's a, well, the problem is, is that if you're not in a part of the world where fruit grows in season, you know, all year round naturally, you're, you're going to be eating cultivated fruit um, not only that, but it's probably been imported from somewhere else, not even your geographic location where you where you are. Um, yeah. And, you know, as Stephen mentioned, 
on a call we did. He's a friend of ours. Uh, he's uh, very learned in these kinds of things. Um, he says that cultivated uh, fruit and stuff, they they uh, rely or they uh, result from damaged soil. So any, anything cultivated is going to be nutritionally uh, deficient. Um, which is exactly what Gata said. He said that, uh, you know, these cultivated, cultivated fruit that people are eating is not, it's not good. You know, I mean, it's all confirms what Gatus is saying, you know. He says that you're only supposed to eat what's in season and local to your, your area where you're at, you know, which makes total sense. Um... So yeah. Yeah. Plus the store bought stuff, even the organic stuff, they pick that before it's completely ripe because they have to do that, or else it'll be overripe and starting to get mushy by the time yeah. it arrives at the store and is put out. Yeah. So even even the best quality stuff in the store is, uh, it leaves something to be desired. Yeah, and it's still going to be, like I said, it's still going to be cultivated unless you're buying it from a local, well, probably even from a local, someplace locally, not even from a store, it's probably still going to be cultivated unless you're, unless it's actually in season. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the thing, like, there's no way to maintain a fruitarian diet naturally in in the Unless you're in a very, very specific parts of the world. Otherwise, it's not even possible. You know? Yeah. For most part of the year, you're going to have to eat game, wild game. So that's all that's available. You know? So, yeah. For us Europeans, that's that's what's natural, you know? Circle of life, man. Yeah. Hakuna Matata. Uh-huh, yeah. There's no way to get around death in this life, you know? I mean, it's a circle, like you said. I mean, everything's cyclical, you know? You can't you can't remove death from the equation. You know, and it's just hilarious when vegans or vegetarians or fruitarians, they try to take the moral high ground position. I love when they do that because they just totally set themselves up. It's like your diet relies on commercial annual monocrop agriculture, which is literally is far more destructive to animal life and insect life and microbial life and all life in general than any kind of you know, alternative, you know, any any natural diet incorporating animal foods, you know? Yeah. It's just... Yeah. yeah. Dude, I, uh... It just shows how ignorant they are when they argue, when they try to take the moral high ground position. I mean, it's... If, you, if you're going to do that, I mean, that just... You literally... You just displayed your ignorance, you know? You just full on... 
Yeah, I. How's it work? What are you gonna say? I, I've heard one extreme story of uh of this. I forget where I hear this, but some radical environmental anarchist author that I read an excerpt from before, he said that he knew a young woman who was so concerned with the uh, you know some local displaced animal population, uh, coyotes. It was that she actually committed suicide and went out there and, you know, for her, for the coyotes to eat her body. It's like, you know, the logical conclusion. That sounds like an actual, that sounds like an actual consistent vegan. So that's a, that's an anomaly. (laughs) That's a total anomaly there. But yeah, she's, Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if she would have been consistent, to be more consistent, she would have denied her veganism and returned to a more, you know, a diet incorporating animal foods. And she would have, she would have been rebelling against, you know, what's causing that, which is, again, like I said, commercial annual monocrop agriculture responsible for displacing all of these I mean, I, I I read a whole book on this called The Myth of Vegetarianism. I'll have to read some parts out of it on this show sometime. But, I mean, it just demo- it gives all the evidence for this, how commercial annual monocrop agriculture in the U.S. alone, not even including other countries where it's practiced, but in the U.S. basically is the sole thing that's responsible for destroying pretty much all of the, the what used to be extremely diverse ecosystems, you know, in the North America mm-hmm. with a variety of uh, large um, predatory uh, mammals, which are all gone now, pretty much. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah because all the ecosystems were destroyed and, uh, like you said, populations were displaced and, yeah. Now, see, the real logical uh, conclusion of an honest vegan shouldn't be to kill themselves as an offering to the starving coyotes, but to kill all the coyotes, too, because they're violent, because they're meat eaters, too. And, you know, if we're all animals and we're all equal, then uh, the coyotes shouldn't be allowed to do, to eat meat and kill other beings if humans aren't. So the real logical conclusion is to be wipe out all animal life on Earth. And then the plants can't, the plants can't live long with the animals, so go ahead and uh, wipe out the plants, too, you know, to end uh, their suffering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, be dissolved yeah. up in the, into the monad, like Greg said. <laughs> An honest follower of the false religion of veganism... Um, would advocate nuclear holocaust across the flat earth. Yeah. Or whatever shape it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for reading yeah, that, that's all Ross. I got for this time. Yeah, dude, I, very, think, I think that I might actually have been suffering from this stuff, so I'm going to try this stuff out. I recently stumbled upon that article, but, you know, I'm I'm thinking that might be some of my own issues. Not that bad. But, uh, right, right. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. So I'll I'll keep you posted on that. Okay. All right. Well, that's all I got. Yep. Me too, man. Uh, all right. Yeah, Thanks the, for joining the, me other two, the other two that were in the chat seem to have run off a while ago, huh? Yeah, Jerry. Jerry always. Well, he's a, he's like literally, and he pops in like every single one of our calls. I don't know okay. how he does it either. He's got some sort of sixth sense where he knows when we're on. Well, he's probably got an RSS feed where it gives him an alert when it's going to happen. Oh, maybe. Or that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, and then Johnny Johnny messaged me. He said his, uh, the page shut down on him or something. Hmm. I don't know what he meant by that. But... Oh, well. Nice to see anyway. some, uh, yeah, some activity. Ch- uh, chat room activity, guys. So welcome yeah. back anytime. Uh-huh. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Ross. We will uh, we'll do this again here. Thank you, Chris. Have a good night. Yep, you too. All right, bye. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.